good morning again, church. I am so glad you're with us this, uh, I call it Christmas Sunday. We're one day past Christmas, and so for me, it's still Christmas weekend. Somebody said, did you guys have a nice Christmas yesterday? I said, to be very honest with you, we collapsed. That's what we did. Uh, we had our gathering with our children last weekend, and uh, yesterday, I, uh, my, my wife slept, my kids read, and I was stir-crazy by around 10.30 in the morning, and so I was out in the garage <laughs> messing around and putting a few things away and just kind of enjoying the day. It was such a good day of rest, and then had our gathering a little bit later that day. So hopefully you've had some time to be able to be with those that you care about. If you're at home, we want to join. Uh, want to thank you as well. We've been in a series called uh, The Chronicles of Christmas, and today's kind of wrapping it up as we uh, go to the book of Luke. If you have your Bibles with you, go to the book of Luke and be ready. We're going to pop into a bunch of different passages. If you have if you have an app with you, or if you have your note sheets, it'll kind of refer to them. We're just going to look at an overview you today of a unique Christmas story told through the eyes of Luke. Now, before we get in there, I've been this week, a friend shared this with me, and I just loved it. It's about a little boy, and frankly, he was, a, he was mean. He was a mean, self-centered, selfish, mean little boy. That's kind of who he was, and Christmas time was coming around, and so he, uh, he did his usual kind of selfish thing. He wrote out 12 pages of a Santa letter of what he wanted for Christmas. And when his parents saw it, they were outraged. They couldn't believe this little boy who was just so naughty would have such audacity and then to be so selfish as to ask for that many presents. And so they, they took the, the uh, letter from him and they took him into the living room where they had a nativity scene. And they said, we want you to sit here and we want you to just think about what the real meaning of Christmas really is. And then you need to write a letter to Jesus and tell him uh, what's going on in your heart. So the little boy sat down and was just kind of pondering as he watched the nativity scene. And after a few moments, he got up and almost had a tear in his eye. And he goes back into his bedroom and he takes out a piece of paper and he starts to write a letter to Jesus. And he said, dear Jesus, if you give me all the gifts that I had on my list for this Christmas... I'll be good for a whole year. And he thinks about it a little bit, tears that out, wrinkles it up, throws it away. And he starts to write another letter. He says, dear Jesus, if you give me all the gifts that I want for Christmas, I'll be good for a whole week. He ponders it a little bit, tears it out, goes back into the living room, sits down, and for a long time just stares at that nativity scene. And he reaches over slowly and he takes the little figure of Mary and goes into his room and puts it in a little box and cozy and puts it into his closet. And then he gets down and he writes a letter and he says, Dear Jesus, if you ever want to see your mother again. <laughs> I thought that was funny. <laughs> oh, man. You guys, you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta laugh or something. That was good. I, I laughed for a whole minute for that one. Anyway, if you have your Bibles with you, take them to the book of Luke. I had something a few weeks ago. I was doing a funeral with a family, and I was asking them a little bit about dad and, and about his faith and those types of things. And they said this to me. They said, dad's favorite book of the Bible was the book of Luke. And he said, um, because the entire Bible, everything you need is in the book of Luke. And I, was, uh, I wasn't disagreeing with him. I was just kind of puzzled by that. I, I, don't, 
I mean, if I were to take a survey, and maybe it is your favorite one, but I, if I took a survey, I, went, I actually told my son Wesley that story that night, and I said, Wesley, just pick a book of the Bible. What's your favorite book of the Bible? And I think, I can't remember which one he picked, but, but I think it was Philippians. And I, you know, if I were to ask you, what's your favorite book of the Bible? I'm guessing that not very many would say the book of Luke. It just doesn't strike me as being, I don't know, just wouldn't be my favorite. But it's interesting because that stuck with me. And over the next several days, I kept pondering that whole thing. Why in the world would the book of Luke be so unique? And, and so I was actually, during my devotional time one morning, I was just reflecting on that. And I felt like the Lord began to kind of lead me as I began to just look and think through the book of Luke. And what's interesting is Luke the historian. Luke is interesting because Luke is not one of the disciples. He is not, in fact, most of his, his knowledge is by working with those who were firsthand experiencers of what had happened in Jesus' life. But he was a doctor, he was a, uh, he was a theologian of sorts, but he certainly was a historian, and he wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts and gives an accurate understanding of how things systematically took place under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And as I began to think down through it, it is interesting because there are some uniquenesses in the book of Luke that we don't really see elsewhere in Scripture. Now, it doesn't mean we don't get the lessons elsewhere. We just don't get these particular stories elsewhere in Scripture. The first one that we see that I want to take a look at today in chapter 2 of Luke is that Luke gives us a unique perspective of how God wants to engage our hopelessness in life. It's the Christmas story. Now, Matthew talks about Jesus being born, but he doesn't get into the story much. He, in fact, Matthew, as we learn, focuses more on the Magi. He really focuses in on that searching, yearning heart of coming and fulfilling Scripture. John really talks more about kind of a, a larger sense of how Jesus is light in the world and the Word became flesh. And Mark, Mark doesn't even get into the, the, the birth story of Jesus. He just goes right into Jesus' ministry and his baptism and that kind of a thing. But Luke, Luke goes in and gives us kind of the background story of, of uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah. He gives us the, the story of the interaction of Gabriel with, with Mary. There's this incredible, but what we see in Luke chapter 2 is the story of the shepherds, and I'm not going to get into the whole story. I just simply want to talk about what he says here. Notice what he says in verse 8 on. He says, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, here it is, do not be afraid, I bring you good news of great joy. Say that phrase with me, good news of great joy. Ready? Good news of great joy, and it'll be for all the people. For today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You will find the baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Now, what's interesting about this is that we live in a world, this actually came to me during the musical. We live in a world that when you're dealing with a hopeless situation, we live in a world where we accuse one another, we fight one another, we clamor for what is ours, we hibernate, we pull away, we, we fight, and we get angry, or we just simply isolate. That's how the world deals with hard situations many times. 
But that's not how God does it. God rushes in. And Luke gives us this incredible hope-filled story as he, as he begins to talk about that this is God in the flesh. This is the Son of God. This is hopefulness, not just for salvation from our sins, even though that's a hopeless situation, but our brokenness in life. God rushes onto the scene. And when humanity doesn't know what to do, it says in uh, Isaiah chapter 8 when it describes that people are looking to spiritists and mediums to get answers in life and they are walking in darkness and despair and utter hopelessness. But then he says, but there shall be no more gloom for later on in that passage, verse 6, he says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The whole the whole engagement of God into our brokenness, into our hopelessness, into our darkness, that is good news of great joy for all people. God doesn't run from pain, he engages pain. And God doesn't run from hopelessness, he engages hopelessness. And we see that in this story of the incarnation in the book of Luke. Now, how does God do that? Well, number one, he identifies with us. Hebrews chapter 2 says that because we're human, Jesus took on humanity, had to be made like us in every way. That because of his taking on and identifying with us, he was able to not only pay for our sins on the cross and to carry our sins, but he actually helps us. He understands us. And if you're going through things today, understand that God knows what you're going through. He identifies with you. Jesus went through the loss of a parent. His dad passed away. Somewhere between the time he was 12 years of age to the time he was on the public scene, we don't exactly know what happened. We just simply know Joseph is missing from the cross scene. And when Jesus looks down and he says, son, here is your mother, mother, here is your son, he, as the eldest son of Mary, is taking care of his mom who is a widow and he wants to entrust her to someone he can really trust and so he entrusts her to John, which is his best earthly friend. We would take that from the Gospels. So Jesus knows what it is to lose someone. Jesus knows what it is to be betrayed, if you've ever been betrayed. Jesus knows what it is to be treated unfairly if you've ever been treated unfairly. Jesus knows what it is to be falsely accused if you have ever been falsely accused. Jesus knows what it is to be the strongest in the room and yet still have to submit to earthly authorities. He submits. He identifies with us and then we understand that he comes alongside of us. In John chapter 14, where he talks about heaven and that he goes to prepare a place for us, later in that passage, he begins to talk about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he says, and I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you and I will send another, the counselor, the comforter, the paraclete, that, that's the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside of. Jesus said that I'm not going to leave you alone. And I don't just identify with you. I come alongside of you. Was it? No, never alone, alone. No, never alone. 
He promised never to leave me, never to leave me alone. Even his name, Emmanuel, what does it mean? God with us. God comes alongside of us, and if we let him, he'll carry us. Matthew chapter 10, very familiar passage, but what does Jesus say? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And my yoke is easy, my burden is light. And then he says, and I'll give you rest for your souls. And so if we allow him, he doesn't just come alongside of us, he carries us, and then he even gives us the hope of heaven, which is through all the gospels, but John 14, when he says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You trust in God, trust also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And so, so it's interesting, even though the entirety of Scripture affirms the truth that Luke is sharing, Luke gives this unique story, this unique picture. He thinks it's important, and I believe it's because the Spirit of God says it's important. You need to realize what God has done to break into your hopelessness. And so if you're broken or hurting, and I can't tell you how many people on Christmas Eve I would walk around and I'd either give a hug or I'd put my arm around them or I would, and I would just say, this is the first, isn't it? Because so many of them, it was the first year of them going through the experience of the loss they'd encountered. Whatever it is, God doesn't run. God rushes in. Now, it's interesting because as you work down through the book of Luke, and there's probably probably 20 plus uniquenesses, but another uniqueness in the book of Luke is found in Luke 15. And as soon as I said that, some of you will go, oh, yeah, yeah. Because Luke 15 is the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and specifically the lost son. Do you realize that of all the Gospels, the only Gospel that we hear the parable of the prodigal son is in Luke? And it's interesting because if you think through that story... And we're not going to read through every passage today, but you'll notice that this, this young man made foolish choices. He was the younger son. He, he, he goes away from his father. In fact, many people, even if you're not from a church background, kind of know the story of the prodigal. And he ends up in a pig pen, going through a pig pen experience. I just say this, every person in life generally goes through a pig pen experience. It means you come to the end of your own strength. You come to the end of your desperation either because of your choices or the choices of others. This happened to be his foolish choices. But it's interesting, it says that when he came to his senses, he said, I am starving to death and there's food to spare in my father's house. I will set, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and he went to his father. And I love this passage. If there are favorite passages in all of the scriptures, this is one of my favorite ones. But while he was still a long way off, he wasn't in the barnyard. He wasn't in the front yard. He wasn't on the front porch. He, well, he was still a long way off. It says, 
His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him and he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And I've shared the Greek on this so many times with you, but you gotta hear it again. It means he kissed him over and over and over. You've hugged somebody. You've politely kissed somebody hello. Hopefully not everybody in here, right? But I mean, you know, the people you know well. But when you kiss somebody over and over and over, there is that feeling. And what it teaches us, number two, is that the Father is always willing to welcome you home no matter how messy or how far you've wandered. And we get that imagery in Luke like, no, it's a unique Christmas story. Because the enemy loves to say, you've gone so far, you've fell so much, you've messed up so bad, you are so distant. God, how could anybody ever love you? And let me tell you, maybe people would run from you, but God rushes in and God will welcome you home no matter how messy or how far you have strayed. It's a unique one. And then if you go to Luke chapter 23, Luke chapter 23, it's another uniqueness. Because all of the authors of the Gospels have a crucifixion scene. But if you go to chapter 23, verse 34, Luke says something kind of unique. Um, there are seven phrases or seven words that Jesus uses on the cross. Um, it is finished is in the book of John. Um, in the book of John, it says, uh, son, here is your mother. Mother, here is your son. We see that on, off the cross. We don't see that everywhere. But notice what it says in verse 24. It says there were two, verse 32 says, two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. And when they came to the place called the skull, they were crucified along with, uh, with him. And one on one side, one on the other side. And then Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Luke is the only one who shares those specific words from Jesus. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And what that teaches me is that God is willing to forgive us even if we're attacking him. Now, who is Jesus saying that to? Well, scholars have kind of disagreed. I think Jesus is saying it to everybody, but, but it's interesting. Is he saying it to the people who are saying crucify him? Is he saying it about the Jews who are the religious rulers who are watching and giving kind of an affirmation? Is he saying it to the, to, the, um, to the Roman soldiers because they're actively crucifying him? Is he saying it the answer is yes. All of them were attacking Jesus in one way or another. And you know what? You may have actively attacked Jesus either with words or by your lifestyle. You are actively saying, I don't really believe he is who he says. And Jesus knows how to forgive even that. He's willing 
to forgive you. Not going to leave you there. He's not going to let you keep doing that. But he's willing to forgive you even if you're attacking him. And then you go down a couple more verses. Luke's the only one. Never dawned on me. Never thought about it. Go down to verse 20, 39 through 43. Every, every gospel author, every gospel author says there were at least two criminals or robbers who were crucified with Jesus. Every one. Luke is the only one who gives us the rest of the story. Verse 39, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And when he came to Jesus, he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. John says there's a couple criminals. Mark says there's a couple criminals. Matthew said there were a couple of criminals. Luke's the only one that tells the rest of the story. It's never too late until it's too late. God can forgive me no matter how messy and far I've wandered. God breaks into my brokenness, doesn't run from my brokenness. God can forgive me even if I've been attacking Him. And God can forgive me. It's never too late until it's too late. And I was thinking, Spirit of the living God, how many people over the thousands of years have come to Christ in an illness, on their deathbed, in the latter stages of their life. Do you know, can I just tell you, can I say something here? Because I'm, I'm getting close enough now that I think I can say it. I get excited when a young person comes to Christ. But I'm going to tell you what, I get just as geeked. We've had such a wonderful opportunity of leading those in their senior years into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And whether they have another 20 years or 30 years or five years or two years, can I tell you I've had the privilege of doing funerals for individuals that only two months, two months before they went into a coma and ultimately passed away. And I've had the chance of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. And in the last days of their life, they knew a joy, they knew a peace that passes all understanding that they would not have had. Because it's not too late until it's too late. Scripture says 
that when we have passed into eternity, it is then too late. There's no second chances after that. But up until that moment, and think about how many people have been encouraged because of that unique Christmas story. Let me give you one more. It's, it's inferred in other passages. Only, only Luke, only Luke gives us the full encounter of the road to Emmaus. And if you don't know the story, it's post-resurrection. It's the day Jesus is risen from the dead and the whole area is in turmoil. And it says that there were two that were walking. They were walking from Jerusalem. And Jesus in the resurrected body, unknown to them, I don't know how he did it, but somehow he's able to keep people from knowing who he is. He encounters them and he begins to encounter them post-resurrection. And he begins to share with them scripture and he begins to share with them. He's trying to, he's trying to get them to connect the dots of all the things that they've heard and seen about him and from him, even the resurrection tomb. He's trying to get them to connect the dots and they're not, they're not doing it. And he looks at them and he says in verse 25, he says, how foolish you are and slow of heart. That means you have a stubborn intellect and you have a heart that is resistant to what the Spirit of God wants to do. He says, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things? And he explained the scriptures to them. And here's what they said after Jesus reveals who he is and after he departs from them. He says, then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. And they ask each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures Luke gives us a unique picture that says <laughs> that God places the burning in your heart there for a reason be obedient to it when you sense the stirring of the Holy Spirit I have people who say all the time man a pastor it feels like you were talking right to us and I just always try to correct them and say oh maybe I was I, I, I was actually and then I always laugh and say your, your wife called me or your husband called me told me to tell you no no I just always say because God was speaking directly to you and if you sense that God has spoken into your heart be obedient because he is speaking directly to you He engages the darkness and the brokenness. He forgives us no matter how messy we are. It's never too late until it's too late. He forgives us even if we're the ones who've been attacking him. Paul, man, what a great story, Paul's. But as he works in our hearts and lives, he puts that burning there for a reason. Be obedient. Don't deny it. And so as we conclude I guess this is our last services of the year. We wanted to have a time of focusing in on communion. Now you'll notice these are a little different cups and bread is on one side and juice is on the other. Make sure you open the bread side first. But communion is a time of celebration celebration of what Christ has done, of Christ coming to our hearts, 
It's a celebration of our relationship with Him. But Scripture says it's also an observation. Where it is good for a man or a woman to examine their hearts, to allow the Holy Spirit to do some searching. It's a good time for us to take care of anything before the Lord that we need to take care of. If He begins to speak to us about relationships, we need to be obedient to that. And so let's just take a moment. Reflect not on just His coming, but on His coming again. His payment for our sins. Jesus, thank you for never running, but engaging. Thank you that I know you identify with everything I walk through. Your work on the cross was for not only my forgiveness of sins, but for relationship with you. I say yes to you again. I say, lead me again. Walk with me, I pray. In Jesus' name. Scripture says that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread. And he said, this is my body. This is the incarnation. This is Christmas. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's partake in the body of Christ. Jesus said, following the evening meal, Jesus took the cup and he said, this is my cup of the new covenant my blood as often as you do of this do so in remembrance of me let's partake in the cup of Christ we celebrate you Lord we say Merry Christmas to you thank you for loving us rescuing us walking with us and someday bringing us home. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.